The Gospel of John chapters 2 through 4 are the first of two of John's collections of episodes about Jesus. In this set of episodes, Jesus collides with four notable Jewish cultural symbols and people who represented them. We'll find out what they learned and what we can learn in today's lesson, You Must Be Born Again. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. back to Gospel Doctrine. What a privilege it is to be discussing the New Testament with you. We have a couple of questions from listeners this week. First question comes from Janet. She asks, I have a question about the temptations of Christ. I was wondering if the Jewish custom of fasting was a 24-hour fast like ours, or a dawn-to-dusk type fast like Muslims do for Ramadan. 24-hour fasting for 40 days would probably be rather lethal, but a dawn-to-dusk fast for 40 days would be spiritual but not lethal. Uh, great question, Janet. The the scriptures, we, we don't know exactly what Jesus did because he didn't follow a Jewish custom in his fast. Obviously, there was no Jewish custom of fasting for 40 days. So what, all we have to go on is the scriptural account, which says that for 40 days and nights, Jesus went without food, and at the end, he was hungry. It seems pretty clear that, I, and I wondered the same thing. I thought, did he fast for 40 days and nights, but eat uh, did he, was it a, a series of 41-day fasts? Um, I don't believe the text supports that interpretation. I believe that Jesus went without food for 40 days. Now, the question comes up then, uh, was this a miracle, or did, did he just simply go without food for 40 days? Now, it is possible to go without food for 40 days if you're drinking water. You'll die in three, in just over three days, three to five days, if you don't drink water. But there are people who can die in three weeks if they're just drinking water and no food. And there are people who've gone eight weeks. And so Jesus, we can, we can guess that Jesus probably would have known his own capabilities. And if he did a fast with no miraculous intervention and he was drinking water, then he probably could have survived even if he was in the desert, if he had plenty of water. Uh, if, if he, now, now Moses, we know from the uh, book, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, in, as well as in other places in Exodus, Moses refers to, in that chapter, his fast of 40 days on Mount Sinai, and he says specifically, I went without eating and drinking for 40 days. So in that case, it's obvious that Moses was sustained uh, physically by the proximity to, to God, by talking to God. It's, it seems likely to me that that's what Jesus was doing, but it's also possible that Jesus was drinking, and going without food for 40 days? Great question. Second question comes from Rinda. She asks, uh, this is, uh, she's wondering what Mary expected to Jesus do when there was no wine. She's asking about the marriage feast. If Mary was aware of Jesus's power, it seems almost inconsequential for her to ask him to do such a thing. We don't know what she was thinking, but if she was aware of his power to heal the sick, the blind, etc., I just wonder about her asking him to solve this problem. This is a great question too, because, because it brings up a broader question. And that is, how do you expect a miracle? Uh, in, the, in the book of Ether, we have the story of the brother of Jared who goes out and finds 
these these stones and ask God to touch them so that they will shine. And he, in other words, he asked God for a specific miracle. Um, but in other cases, you know, most of the times in our lives, we don't say, God, I want this exact thing, especially if it's for our convenience, for example, something that uh, we're totally capable of doing, like going and getting wine for a wedding. Do we say to God, I expect a miracle, and the miracle has to be of this specific type? Uh, so that's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. I don't know exactly what would have been appropriate for Mary to do. And I also don't know that Mary, that Mary would have come up with the idea, Jesus turned water into wine. Uh, only Jesus knew what he was capable of before he, he did it. So someone watching Jesus heal might not have, might not have assumed that he could turn water into wine. Uh, but what do, but the real question is, what do we do when we need, we know we need a miracle from God and we don't know exactly what form it should take. Um, and and I'm open to your answers on that. I think it's a wonderful question. It's worth thinking about. Uh, do we act like the, the brother of Jared who brought these stones and asked for a specific miracle, asked them to be illuminated? Or do we act like Mary and, a, and waited for Jesus to handle the problem? Thank you for that, Rinda. If you want to have your question included on the program, please email me, gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And again, remember, your five-star reviews on Facebook and iTunes help us to reach more people every week as you're doing. So thank you for all of your reviews and the shares that you give our show. We very much appreciate it. So this week we have the opportunity to leave a little bit the, the strict narrative of Jesus and go back to the Gospel of John. And I, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, the first chapter of John, the book of John is sort of an exception in the Gospels in that the first chapter of John is almost a thematic introduction to what we're going to be studying as we as we learn about the life of Jesus. Um, and I guess it, it feels, if you read it quickly, the Gospel of John also feels just like a straight narrative. We're, we're learning about the ministry of Jesus. But really what it is, as we, as we discussed, is it's a series of lessons it's packed full of lessons about gospel themes that are illustrated by stories of Jesus. And John says specifically that he leaves a, a lot of things out. He says in chapter 20, at the end of the chapter, he says, I, these are the signs that I chose and other signs. Jesus did many signs that were not recorded. So in other words, John is saying, I, I left a lot of things out. And we can, we can gather from that that John had a specific purpose for everything that's in the book, that's in the gospel of John. In fact, if, if you think about the most amazing work of art that you've ever seen, if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel, for example, and looked up at the, at the ceiling, let's, let's say that that's the most amazing work of art ever created. John is the Michelangelo of evangelists. This, this is his Sistine Chapel ceiling, this gospel of John. It is that packed full of meaning, and it is that intentional about everything going on. And we'll discuss uh, just just a few of the things, and I'm sure we're missing, I'm sure I'm missing tons of them. We'll discuss some of the reasons why that, that's true. At the end of the Gospel of John, also John says, if, if the books, if, if books were to be, get, or if everything that Jesus did was to be written, then the world itself wouldn't be able to hold all the books that should be written. So, uh very specifically, John tells us more than once that he has a reason. The reason that he chose everything that he did is to convince us to believe in Jesus. 
So let's get started on chapter two. The first, the, the first thing to remember is, I don't know if you listened to the, the lesson on John chapter one, but one of the points that I made then was that John uses place names as an indication of what's going on. So uh, there was a place, the place where Jesus was baptized was called Bethabara, but John called it Bethany because it was close enough to the name of Bethabara. And the reason for that, we can, we can guess at the reason, he called it Bethany beyond Jordan. So John is drawing a parallel. If you remember, there's a, there's a popular Jewish teaching technique called parallelism. When uh, a similar idea is expressed twice, but changed slightly. It's, it's just simple repetition with a slight change so that you'll remember it. You'll hear it two different ways. And so what John is doing is drawing a parallel between the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the end. And where the end of Jesus's ministry is the raising of Lazarus. That's a very uh, significant episode in the Gospel of John. And that happens in Bethany near Jerusalem. So Jesus begins his ministry in Bethany beyond Jordan, finishes his ministry in Bethany near Jerusalem. We have a similar thing going on in these three chapters in the town, uh, in the Galilee town of Cana. And it's not right on the Galilee, it's a little bit south. Um, but there is a there is a marriage right in verse one. There's a there's a marriage feast there, and we don't know. Um, Mary seems to be very concerned. Mary, the mother of Jesus, seems to be very concerned about uh, the circumstances of the wedding. I've even heard uh, some Latter Day Saint scholars debate whether this was the wedding of Jesus himself. We don't have any modern revelation. We don't have any doctrine on that. So that's just some speculation. But that speculation does exist. I thought I'd mention it. In any case, Mary is. Uh, extremely concerned what's going to happen when all this wine runs out. So there was some wine at the wedding. And then she comes to Jesus and says, uh, the wine's almost run out. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. In other words, uh, this might not be the right time for me to start to gain followers by performing miracles. Um, in any case, he did perform a miracle. And what he did was he, he had the servants gather huge water pots and then serve from the water pots. And this wine came, and, and the, uh, the ruler of the feast, as it's called in the King James Version, comes to Jesus and says, uh, to the bridegroom, he says, wow, most people would serve the best wine at the beginning, and then as people start to get a little tipsy, and they aren't as picky, then they would bring the worst wine at the end. And, but you've saved the best wine for last. This is actually a deviation from the story. And so we can, we can guess from the way that John deviates and takes, takes time talking about the quality of the wine and, and the comment that was made, that it's significant. And then uh, we have the, the statement in verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested, sorf, manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So right away, we have the activation of several of these themes that we, that we studied in the first chapter of John. First of all, the water. So Jesus is baptized, and he's immersed in water, and we see this water turned into wine. Secondly, wine itself uh, activates the idea of a transformation. So the water is turned into wine, and if you remember in uh, John, 1 chapter, John chapter 1, verse uh, 16, all of us receive grace from Christ. And in 17, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Jesus transforms us, and here he is transforming this water. 
So there, there, and in fact, there are a number of um, themes activated here. We'll talk about them as they come up. But let's let's go over a little bit of what's going on in this story of the wine. First of all, to a especially to a modern Latter Day Saint audience, um, I remember my mission president got this question so many times that he addressed it once during a leadership conference. The question was, why would Jesus knew that one day the prophets were going to reveal the word of wisdom? Why would he turn water into wine and give us this problem of, um, because it, it came up a lot when you're teaching the word of wisdom, people say, well, why, if, if we can't drink wine, why would Jesus turn water into wine? And so there's that idea that, uh, but, but even non uh, Latter-day Saint Christians also kind of balk at the idea of, of Jesus creating an alcoholic drink. So don't think about a cultural situation in which uh, there's alcoholism. Wine, wine is associated with alcoholism. It's associated with abuse. It's associated with drunk driving. It's associated with liver problems. This is not the culture in which the Jews lived. Okay, so to get, to get an idea of what John's doing here, we have to we have to explore this idea of wine. So think about what what we know of the Hebrew scriptures and what wine symbolizes. First of all, wine is what makes the party, right? It it brings it brings cheer to the party. To to see this um, illustrated, there's a particular chapter in the book of Judges that I read every election year, and you'll see why. But uh, this is the parable of the brambles. And the, uh, the trees go out to elect a leader, and they first go to the olive tree, and the olive tree says, no, I'm, I'm too busy creating olives. So they go to the fig tree, and the fig tree says, I can't be your king. I'm, I'm too busy creating figs. And then they're getting less and less picky. So the trees go to the, to the vine, and the vine says, shall I, shall I leave off my wine that cheers God and man? And uh, this is Joshua chapter 9, verse 13. So that, that's one of the symbols, that's one of the, the things, the images that is conjured up into a Jew's mind of Jesus' time when they hear the word wine. They're thinking, this, yes, this is what wine is for, is to cheer God and man. This is what the vine is for. You'll remember during the Exodus when the children of Israel are about to, they're considering going into the promised land, and um, this is in, actually it's not in Exodus, it's in Numbers chapter 13. The, uh, the, they send spies. So they've been, they've been a couple of years now in the wilderness and, and God has told them, go into the promised land. They don't have to wander for 40 years. This was decreed after this, uh, this episode. Send the spies into the promised land and see how you like it. See what you think, whether you're ready to go into it. And they found a, a, a people, a nation of large people. And then they brought back a vine laden with clusters of grapes and they put it it was so big they had to put it on a pole between them so they brought these huge grapes back and they said it's it's a wonderful country it's abundant but there's giants living there and because of their lack of faith that's why they were cursed to wander for 40 years but the 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 vine itself symbolized the abundance of the land of Israel and so this is these are the two uh sort of important images of wine is cheer and abundance. The, the grapes are abundance, and the wine that's made from the grapes is cheer. And it's not just cheering man, it's cheering God and man, as it says in uh, Joshua chapter 9. So 
that that's a little bit of what's going on in their minds when they hear of Jesus turning water into wine. This is what he's doing. He's taking normal water and he's creating something that symbolizes abundance and the blessings of God. And there's there's another uh, very important scripture in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 25. So Isaiah has prophesied of the of the last days, and he's he's talking about a particular event as he's preparing for the last days, or as he's initiating the last days, the, the that blessed time when God lives among the Jews. In other words, when the Messiah comes, this is this is what the Jews think of when they think of the Messiah, the ushering in of this blessed time when God lives with them. There's huge abundance in the land, and this is part of that image in Isaiah 25. Verse 6, in this mountain, and this mountain means Jerusalem in Isaiah, right? When Isaiah is talking about a mountain, Isaiah lives in Jerusalem. It's the mountain of the Lord. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. Wines on the lees are, uh, I had to look this up because I'm not a wine aficionado, but the lees are, and that's this is a term still used today, lees are yeast and enzymes that are broken up and they combine to form complex carbohydrates and and amino acids in the wine that's considered a very rich tasting full-bodied wine so when wine is aged on the lees it means it's it's well aged and it's a very fine wine it's a quality wine so this is a feast uh, of delicious delicious food and what's interesting is christ is symbolizing this feast. However, he's the one who literally creates the wine. When I believe in Isaiah, when he's saying, um, in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast, I think that's a symbolic prophecy. He's saying the people will enjoy the abundance of the earth, symbolized by beef or meat with the marrow and wine on the lees. So people will enjoy abundance. People will enjoy richness and abundance and the, the blessing of God's presence. And Jesus, to, to symbolize that, that this is what's going on, that he's fulfilling this prophecy, he literally creates wine. So um, one other thing that we can, we can sort of glean from this passage in Isaiah, this, if, if there's a constant image in, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament that there is a marriage between God and man. Uh, God uses the the wife imagery a lot to talk about how Israel has been faithless. And in the New Testament, you'll remember Paul says, husbands love your wives even as God loved the church and gave himself for it. So God is the husband and the church, the people who believe in him are the, are the wife, we're married to him. And this this feast that Isaiah describes is a wedding feast. So here's Christ at a wedding feast, creating wine, making this feast into a into a wonderful, or making this wedding banquet into a feast of fat things. So so quality is the wine that somebody remarks, this is well-aged wine. This is wine on the lees. I can't believe you saved this wine for last. Everybody's not going to be able to appreciate it. Why would you why would you save something so wonderful for last? And so we have all of these things being activated, all of these themes, all these ideas are now finding, uh, finding a voice. If you remember, one of, the, one of the themes was that people, that John would bear witness that, uh, that other people might believe. So here Jesus does uh, 
what's called a miracle in the King James Version. In other translations, it's called a sign, the first sign. Now, um, and it, one of the sources from where I'm getting a lot of what I'm talking about today is from a series of essays by a man named Richard Bauckham, B-A-U-K-H-A-M. You can look this up on Amazon. I highly recommend it. The book is called The Testimony of the Beloved Disciple. It's a collection of essays. And uh, Tim Mackey had, does a does a wonderful lecture on this lecture series. It's about five hours long. You can find it on YouTube as well on the Gospel of John. And a lot of it's drawn from Richard Bauckham's writings. But the point is um, that once you start to see exactly how John is framing all of this, you can't really see it in any other way. So John has, he's very careful. And you, you notice in the first verse, there's on the third day, he's very careful to count these days. And in the days leading up to the first Bethany, he shows you that there's seven days, if you're counting them, up to the first, or I'm sorry, up to the first sign, up to the first miracle. And this says at the end of this, at the end of this account, uh, this was the first miracle that Jesus did. And then when Jesus uh, raises, at the, at the end of today's lesson, we'll talk about this, when he raises the son of a certain nobleman from, from illness, then it says this is his second sign, his second miracle. And then he stops counting. But if we're counting carefully, we'll see that when Jesus gets to the second Bethany, then that's the sixth sign. So there's seven days at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, a week of creation of Jesus's ministry. And then at the end, between the sixth sign and the seventh sign, which is Jesus's resurrection, there's seven days and there's seven miracles. So if you think there's anything haphazard about the way John has arranged the events and the miracles and these accounts in his gospel, just look at a few of these things that we're counting down and you'll, you'll start to recognize that this is all so carefully arranged and so carefully chosen that, uh, that we might believe, as John says. So that's, that's some of the things going on here, and this, this banquet is one of them. So this is a marriage now between God and man, and Jesus is symbolizing the richness that exists when, uh, when man and God are in partnership. And they have the richest things of the world. Another thing that happens is this this Lord of the feast, the master of the feast, he doesn't see, it says specifically, he doesn't see where the wine came from. But the servants did see. And so I, I've mentioned a few times, uh, in fact, I think I've mentioned it in just about every lesson that we've done on the New Testament, the idea of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You see that in all four Gospels. And here's an activation of this idea. Uh, the, the servants see the miracle that Jesus creates, but the master of the feast does not. And it's again activated when the, the poorest wine was served at the beginning and the best wine was saved for last. So twice in, in one symbol, in one action, Jesus activates this idea, the first shall be last and the last shall be, shall be first. So in this particular case, the meaning of it is that the, the, the poor in heart, the, the servants, were the ones who saw the miracle of Jesus. They were the ones who, to whom the light shone, and the, the master of the feast did not get to see it. He would have had to hear about it secondhand, presumably later on. And then the, if the wine, the wine is also a symbol, obviously, of blood. Isaiah says um, elsewhere, I've trod the winepress alone, 
or actually this is uh, Yahweh saying this in the Old Testament, I've, I've trodden the winepress alone. So wine is a, is a red liquid. It's a symbol of blood. It's a symbol of suffering and a price to be paid in that way. And so there's the, the first wine, which is, which is weaker, and then there's the best wine, the wine that's the richest, wine on the lees, the aged wine that comes last. And it almost seems like uh, John is teaching us why Jesus needed to come to earth twice. So several, several manifestations, several iterations of this idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, the best is saved for last. We don't have a lot more time to spend on this episode, but we've got to go back to Isaiah 25 and talk a little bit more about this banquet. So um, what happens after the people are eating and drinking, they're swallowing their food, they're, they're, they're drinking the fine wine and they're eating the meat on the marrow and, and presumably swallowing this. And then, in, uh, and then it says, the Lord God will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And we have in several translations, he will swallow up the covering. So the people are swallowing this choice meal and God is eating up the veil. So in the same way that we're be being invited once again into communion with God, he is swallowing up the veil and removing the coverings from our eyes. And, he, and here Jesus is with the first of his miracles, the first of his signs to show who he is, to show that he's the, the Messiah. So we're still in Isaiah chapter 25. Now we're in verse 7 and 8. Uh, Yahweh is now swallowing up the veil, removing the, the covering over our eyes, and then swallowing up death itself, destroying death. So all separation between God and man is disappearing. And this is what Jesus is evoking when he, when he brings wine, the choicest of wines, into this banquet. He turns this banquet into a feast. And then after, after this, uh, um, this prophecy by Isaiah, the people join in the song where they're rejoicing in, in God, their king. And any time in the Old Testament when people are rejoicing, singing about God being their king, it's, it's almost like a conscious, it's for sure a conscious allusion to what's called the Song of the Sea, Exodus chapter 15, which is this, if you've ever seen the cartoon version of Prince of, e- of Egypt, it's a wonderful representation of this uh, happening. But as the, as the children of Israel are walking up out of the, the Red Sea split in two, they sing this wonderful hymn of praise to God. And this is the first time in the Old Testament that God is called a king, that Yahweh is called a king. And so the, the people at the time of this feast of Isaiah, the, at the time of the second coming or the, the coming of the Messiah, when Yahweh does his gathering, then people will sing a similar song. So once again, we're evoking images of the Exodus, we're evoking images of the final days, we're evoking images of the Messiah, and all this by Jesus turning water into wine. So there's an answer to the question. It's abundance, it's cheer, it's evoking the, the final days, of the blessed days of the gathering, and the, the blessed deliverance of the, uh, of the Exodus, as well as the, the idea that there's, there's blood and suffering and and uh, something that will only come to have meaning later on at the death of Jesus. So that's that's the first um, that's the first collision that Jesus has with this cultural symbol of Judaism, which is a Jewish wedding, a wedding banquet, and 
The next one is Jesus at the temple. He goes almost immediately in the story, not not temporally, but not chronologically, but in the story, Jesus, next we see him in the temple. And he rushes in and he quotes Jeremiah. If you remember, Jeremiah stood outside the temple and said, why are you why are you coming to the temple with all your sins still on you? You're pretending that the temple is a protection for the sinful when really it's a sanctuary for the righteous. You've turned this temple, the house of my father, the house of God into a den of robbers. And Jesus says um, the same thing. He, he, he basically says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And if you if you've ever wondered what why he felt like he had to turn over these these tables what these money changers were doing they were taking the obligation that Jewish people had to uh, to sacrifice and this is during the height of sacrifice season right in the middle of Passover um, they considered worldly coin impure and so you had to first change your money that you could use elsewhere into temple money and then you could buy sacrificial animals and so many people didn't it was just easier for them, or maybe they didn't have the means, or that wasn't their livelihood to raise animals. They had to buy these sacrificial animals. So the first thing they had to do was change money. And this prevented them from being able to get a better deal on their animals. It basically mean the temple, uh, it meant that the temple high priest could set the price. It was uh, a, an extortion of the people from their religious beliefs of the highest degree, and it was perpetrated by the very people who were in charge of the temple. In this case, Annas and Caiaphas, who the, these wicked high priests, Sadducees, and it was almost like organized crime. This is, this is Jesus refusing to be afraid to poke the, those in power right where they were the most sensitive. He went directly to the temple and he said, you are, this is wickedness, you've turned the temple into something terrible to raise money. He pointed he pointed a finger, he made a public display of something that for sure these high priests wanted kept absolutely private. They just wanted to keep making their money from this. And I'm sure they thought it was righteous, you know, we're using this for the purposes of God's work, etc. They did they justified it to themselves. And they th- and this is when they decided Jesus has to die. Right at the beginning. And so right away Jesus Jesus was not this is what Jesus meant when he said I come not to bring peace, but a sword. He didn't mean actual violence. He meant, I am not going to look the other way at sin and iniquity. One of the one of the common interpretations of the book of John is to assume that John is justifying. What Jesus wanted was an end to Judaism and a beginning to a new religion called Christianity that would follow Jesus only. And, um, and, and as... As backup, as as the rationale of this, it shows they they cite how John displays that Jesus had disdain for so many of these cultural symbols. So that's exactly what we're reading about now. And the truth is that Jesus was not anti-Semitic, as you, as we might call it today. Jesus was as much an anti-Semite as Jeremiah was, right? Jeremiah was saying the same thing. Jesus was pro-covenant. He was absolutely a faithful Jew. He had no problem with Judaism if it was respected, and he loved the Hebrew scriptures, and he was he was steeped in them, as were the other people around him. And uh, so that that's not accurate. If you ever run across that idea that that this is what's happening in the Gospel of John, what's really happening is Jesus is giving the Jews a message for their time that 
Judaism is great, but you're not doing it properly. And in fact, as we'll discuss when, uh, with the woman at the well, uh, Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. He says specifically that sentence. And so um, he, he believes that they have the authority and that they have the, the scriptures and they have the teachings to bring them to God if they'll only follow them. Now, a couple of notable things also happen in this instance that John quotes Psalm 69, 9, when he says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up or consumed me. So he's talking about Jesus and saying, Jesus is so zealous for his father's house, but he doesn't continue that quote. So if we go to the 69th Psalm and read what comes next, the reproaches of them that reproached thee, meaning God, are fallen upon me, meaning David. So this is somebody willing to accept reproach because it was aimed at God and put himself in between the world's slings and arrows and God and, and receive them on God's behalf. What could more accurately describe Jesus? So John is expecting that we already know this psalm so well that all he has to do, and this is the case throughout all four of, all, all four of these little vignettes, is that um, the teachings are brought in almost by reference. They don't have to be mentioned because everyone reading it and everyone understanding it knew the Old Testament, knew the Hebrew Scriptures so well that it's just immediately brought into their head. So as soon as John says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, everyone thinks, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. They would have filled in the blanks. And so we're going to fill in some of these blanks. We have to, we have to do a lot more homework, obviously, because we don't, we don't eat and sleep the Hebrew Scriptures the way the Jews did. But th- this is what John is saying, is that, that Jesus is willing to put himself between the reproaches of man and God. And uh, the, the next thing that happens is the Jews come up and say, this, the Sadducees in charge of the temple, they say, what, what is your authority? Where, where do you get off uh, coming into the temple and turning over these, these tables? Why do you think that that's okay? And Jesus says, he, he totally disregards the question. And he says, if you destroy, and as he so often did, Right When Jesus had a lesson to teach, it wasn't important to him to talk about what, what you want to talk about. He immediately gets right to the point that's important for you, rather than what you think is important for you. So they said, where do, where do you get this authority? And he says, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it again in three days. Now, again, we're, now we're having another theme activated from John chapter 1, which is Jesus dwelt. If you remember, we talked about this word dwelt. It's a, it's a word turned into a verb. Jesus tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. God was, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And in that, in that word, we were taught an important lesson in John chapter one, that Jesus is the temple. And John realizes this after Jesus is dead. And he says, and this is, this is John foreshadowing the seventh sign, because what does Jesus say? No sign, a wicked and a perverse generation seeketh after a sign, you're not going to get a sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah or Jonas. And that sign is that Jesus will be three days in the tomb. We talked, we talked a little bit about, um, when we talked about baptism, we talked about the ways in which the, the meanings of the sign of the prophet Jonas. But, uh, so Jesus has activated that and he's also called his resurrection specifically a sign. And so when John talk, talk, talks about signs, therefore a specific purpose, which is, that they will illuminate us, right? It activates this idea of light from John chapter one, the, the, the idea of testimony that 
when people, when miracles are shared from one person to the next, they start to believe. And then the idea of community, that the more people that believe, they start to join together and strengthen each other and fortify each other's faith. So all of these things are starting to happen. And in fact, John mentions that there are more miracles performed in Jerusalem during the Passover, but he doesn't say what they are. So he doesn't mention specific signs. And you can see from this that he he limited on purpose the number of signs so that when he got to the resurrection, it was number seven. Or at least we can we can guess that that might be what John's purpose was to to relate these seven signs and leave the rest out. Because as he says in chapter 20, I'm, I'm telling you these things that you might believe. Not so that you can have a comprehensive knowledge of Jesus, but that you might believe. So Jesus tabernacles with us, and a tabernacle is shared space between heaven and earth. Just as Jesus is shared space, he's, a, he's, the, he's the union. If you think of a Venn diagram, Jesus is that little football shape in the middle between God and man, just like the temple is that little football shape between heaven and earth. And what what we think, because we've gone to the temple our whole lives, we think the temple, we think, oh, Jesus, the, the sacrifice of Jesus is sort of is sort of like the temple. But in fact, it's the other way around. The temple is a symbol of Jesus. The fact that the temple is shared space is just a symbol of how Jesus is shared space between heaven and earth, God and man. And that's what, and that's another uh that's another activation from John chapter 1, the word made flesh, the word tabernacling here with us on earth. So uh, finally at the end, so what happens is people see these miracles and they trust in Jesus. This is the end of chapter 2. But it says Jesus didn't trust them. Uh, and, and it's, he didn't, we, we lose, actually we lose this uh, a little bit in translation here. The word is that, that they trusted in Jesus, they believed on him, and the word is episteosan, they trusted, and then, but he didn't commit himself to them, but the word is the same, episteoian, which is the singular. So they're actually using the same word. They believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He knew all men, which means he knew, he knew humans, he knew humanity, he knew what men are like. So he didn't need anyone to testify. This, I'm explaining what these, these verses mean because they're a little, uh, the translation is not exactly clear in modern English. But the point of these verses at the end of chapter 2, John chapter 2, is uh, Jesus didn't need anyone to explain men to him. He knew, all, he knew what men are all about. And this is one of the biggest contrasts of all the, that all of the gospel writers draw, which is the contrast between Jesus and what he had in store for us in mind for us and what we have in mind for ourselves. Um, Jesus, the, the most common title that he chose for himself, and I'm going to bring this up again and again, is the Son of Man. And this is uh, a phrase from the seventh chapter of Daniel where these, these beasts representing the governments of man have destroyed and run rampant and trodden down and pulverized everything they touch. And then the Son of Man is lifted up, and all judgment is committed into his hand. And then righteousness and peace and abundance abound. And so that is the contrast. That is what, when, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that's the contrast that he's drawing between what men are and what they should be. So it's, it's just interesting now to go into chapter 3. The, verse, the first verse of chapter 3 is, Now there was a man who came to Jesus, Right? So right away, it's, it, 
this this break between chapter two and three is after is actually a modern uh, innovation. And so, uh, really, what the story, what John is doing here, is he's setting us up to be suspicious of the next person that's going to come into the story. People trust Jesus, but Jesus doesn't trust them because he knows what men are like. He knows the Son of Man knows what happens when men are in charge. And there was a man who came to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus at nighttime so that, you know, and you get the impression that it could be hidden, right? So right away, we trust Jesus in this story, and we don't trust the person that comes to him at night. The man who comes to Jesus is one of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus, and he has a question for Jesus, and he says, well, at first, he just he just basically says, Master, we know that you must be from God because nobody who wasn't from God could do all these miracles. And Jesus, again, just ignores the question and gets right to the point. And he says, look, look, except unless unless you're born again, as we as we have it in our translation, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And, and Nicodemus says, what? What? Wait, what? And uh, so right now there's another little Greek, uh, nerdy thing we're going to get into, which is the word again. You wouldn't think there'd be a whole lot of ambiguity there, but this word anothen again has two meanings. It means from above and it means again. Now it's most commonly rendered again because G- uh, Nicodemus understands again. What Nicodemus does is he says, well, what what do you mean? Are we going to go back into our mother's womb and be born again? <clears throat> So that's obviously what Nicodemus understood when Jesus says, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus, but, but here's where we, where we start to doubt whether Nicodemus had the right of it, because Jesus doesn't respond to that. He doesn't say, yes, you do have to be born again. <clears throat> Jesus says, um, Jesus immediately continues as if he was talking about being born from above. And uh, so the, the idea of being born again is, is nothing new to us. We've all heard of born-again Christians. We've been raised on the phrase born again um, or born anew or reborn, but they all come from this scripture, and it was a new idea, and, and Nicodemus was saying, why would, why would we be born again? Uh, what, what, what occurs now is every bit, if not more, eloquent than what we have in the Book of Mormon as Alma chapter 5, where we are we receive the images of the image of God in our countenance. Jesus explains what it means to be born again. The problem is, once again, he'll give us the barest tidbit of an idea, and we have to fill in the blanks from the Hebrew scriptures, like Nicodemus would have been able to do. So when Nicodemus says, Wait, do I have to be born again? Then Jesus says, Look, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, then you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? You and, and uh, we know that Jesus is talking about being born from above. This same word, anothen, is used later in the same chapter, John chapter 3, uh, verse 31. This is when Jesus, or John the Baptist is testifying of Jesus. And he says, He that cometh anothen is above all. He that cometh from heaven. Now here's an example of parallelism. The same idea stated twice, but a little bit different. Once from above, once from heaven. So clearly, later in the chapter, it's very, very clear that anothen means from above. Uh, so uh, this is this is sort of 
accepted, I'm, I, I recognize I'm going against very accepted wisdom that Jesus said you have to be born again. But what he may have said is, except you are born from above. So here's, here's some more support for this idea. What did Jesus mean when he said, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit? Number one primary answer, everybody's going to say, you're baptized and you're given the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is so obviously what it means except it's not what it means. And I know this is going to this is going to throw a lot of you off, but uh what Jesus this is this is almost certainly what Jesus was referring to. Now, was he talking about baptism? Yes. There's no doubt that Jesus taught baptism everywhere he went. It was very important to him. But after after hearing after reading these next group of scriptures, I think you're going to agree with me that that was his secondary intent. Primarily, he's talking about what Ezekiel taught. So if we go to Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel describes the gathering just as, just as Isaiah did with this feast. This feast is going to happen when once Israel is gathered. God describes what happens after he gathers Israel. I will, spr- and, th- and this is Isaiah 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And this is a reference to um, Numbers chapter 8, among other places. There's, this is how a priest and Ezekiel, if you remember, he was a priest. If, if he had remained in Jerusalem and not gone into exile, he would have been the high priest of the temple. It, this would have been him doing this. But this is how a priest ritually purifies someone, is they sprinkle pure water, the water of purification, and it's clean water, right? So uh, here he is in, in Ezekiel thirty six twenty five. I will sprinkle clean water on you and give you a new heart, a new spirit. You've been born of water and of the spirit. You'll be ritually cleaned, and then you will have this new heart that God gives you. His grace will change your heart. Uh, I will put my spirit, now we're in verse Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Or as Jeremiah puts it in, in uh, and I've, I've, I've referred to this scripture often enough that hopefully some of you at least have it memorized by now. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, my Torah within them, and write it in their hearts. So this is what Jesus means when he says, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, unless you're purified, and unless the law of God is written in your hearts, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's almost certainly what Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus would have understood it instantly. And uh, so Jesus is, is saying there's a, the priest can purify you. You have to be ritually pure, and then you have to have this change come upon you. It's exactly what we understand now by being born again, except Jesus isn't, isn't describing it exactly the way that we've thought. Jesus is saying, God has to write this in your hearts. And for the first time, Nicodemus is understanding, oh, I've always understood these scriptures to mean that God will make me a better person without my intervention. And Jesus is saying, for you to be born again, you have to choose to let God write this in your hearts. Like you, you play a part in this process of being born again. And he, and, and Nicodemus is, he's, he's a rabbi, right? So this is the third cultural symbol that Jesus collides with. And at this moment, Nicodemus's jaw drops. He has an understanding of the Hebrew scriptures that is just blow, absolutely blowing his mind. And he said, how can these things be, right? The, the, the whole uh, 
the whole point of the encounter is that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and he's trying, we don't know exactly what his intent was, but he might have been trying to do what the other Pharisees and scribes were when they come to Jesus and they try to trip him up or they try to get him to say too much. And he says, look, we know you're from God or you couldn't do these signs. And immediately Jesus starts to, uh, to teach him a lesson about the Hebrew scriptures and how he can change his heart. And he did it so well, Jesus did it so well, that immediately Nicodemus is converted. And we know that Nicodemus is converted, not from this story, but, but later on chapter 7, and then uh, when Jesus dies, Nicodemus shows up as a believer. So Nicodemus is converted in one conversation with Jesus. Now this is an activation of what happened with Nathaniel. Jesus talks to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And that just, that just opened up the scriptures in a way, and you'll have to go back and listen to that lesson if you want to know how. That, opened a, that one phrase opened the scriptures in such a way for Nathaniel that he said, You're, you are the Christ. Jesus can convert people through miracles, as he did uh, in chapter 2. During the, during the Passover, after he turned over the money changers' temples, he did a bunch of miracles, and a lot of people believed in him. Um, or he can have one conversation with you, and you can have your eyes open to such an extent that you're a believer. The, both of these ideas are ideas that find their origin in chapter 1 and now are, are being, being uh, developed and being fleshed out as the, as the book of John continues. So as further evidence of, of what's going on, Ezekiel 36 turns into Ezekiel 37 which is this valley of dry bones returning to life. And they stand up and they're assembled like skeletons. And then the sinews and the muscles and the flesh comes in and then the skin is put on them. And then the wind comes in and it's breathed into them. And it's this, and it's this mighty army. And then in, in chapter 37, verse 24, uh, Ezekiel says, they shall walk in my judgments and do them. So God, these are, these are people who have been brought back to life spiritually and have the wind breathed in. The wind and the spirit are the same word, ruach, in Hebrew. And they've had this wind breathed into them. And now they're walking in my judgments and doing them. In other words, they have had my law written on their hearts. They've undergone this rebirth. And um, Isaiah, just, just to give you a couple more scriptures that would have gone through Nicodemus's mind, Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. I guarantee you Nicodemus had this poem memorized. This is a Hebrew poem from Isaiah 44. And then in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The spirit itself is seen as a, almost a liquid, and this this metaphor or this or this image is used quite often. So, uh, and at the end of this, the point of this encounter is to show Jesus's superiority of understanding of the law and the prophets. And Nicodemus should have known he was a rabbi; he should have known the meaning of these scriptures. But one conversation with Jesus was enough to show him he'd missed the point of he'd he'd missed the entire point of all the gospel that he'd learned up to that time. So the Jews are all waiting for Ezekiel's promise to happen to them. And Jesus taught, you, you play a part in your rebirth. And uh, Nicodemus was so touched that he converted to a follower of Jesus, even though he remained a member of the Sanhedrin, and he fought for Jesus as time went on. So is this about baptism? Yes. But 
is it primarily about us having ourselves? I mean, it's primarily about what is going on in Ezekiel chapter 36. So I encourage you to read that. The final encounter, John chapter 4, Jesus goes to, um, he's heading home from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria, which is just west of the River Jordan. And there's this, there's a well there. It's called Jacob's Well. You can still visit it today. Um, because it's a body of water, because it's a well, it's it's a font of water, it's actually um, pretty pretty definite that that is the place it's been since ancient times. Other other locations are hard to pinpoint, but when water is involved, sometimes it's easy. So uh, an interesting cultural symbol here is Jacob's well. So this this brings in Jacob, uh, the the father of all the Jews. Jacob was renamed to Israel. He is the father of their nation, literally as well as figuratively. And this well was was gifted by him. And uh, the Samaritans now occupy this land. Now, if you remember the Samaritans, they are the people that resulted when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, brought in, they took out the inhabitants of the land and took them who knows where, and brought in a bunch of other slaves from other places. And then the Jews that were, remained, they sort of tried to convert these newcomers to, uh, to Judaism, but they did an imperfect job of it, and they all intermarried. And so the Samaritans believed in Yahweh, but they didn't have, uh, they didn't have the same scriptures, they didn't have the same traditions, they didn't have the same, uh, or I should say the same dedication to the scriptures, the same understanding of the scriptures. And so when the Jews returned from exile uh, in, in Persia, the, the Samaritans said, let us help you rebuild the temple. And the Jews said, your, your religion is impure. We can't let you. And uh, this, then they're, they're, this bitter feud arose. And that's why they hate each other so much. And uh, so Jesus is, is talking to a woman at the well. And, and you can read John chapter, tw- chapter 4 if you want to know all the details of what happened. But um, the first thing that happens is the Pharisees had heard, Jesus leaves Jerusalem because the Pharisees had heard that more people are starting to believe in Jesus. So he leaves Jerusalem. So now he's threatened the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees controlling the temple, the Pharisees controlling the synagogues and the everyday practice of Judaism. He's offended both of them. Uh, and you can think of this, even though there's not a one-to-one correspondence, but you could think of this as the the Republicans and the Democrats in modern day United States. If you're outside the United States, maybe you have something similar. Um, but two political parties that are warring, and Jesus knows that they're both corrupt to some extent. They have, you know, they, they're trying to do the right thing in many cases, but they have at their heart a corruption that separates them from God. And Jesus has, instead of dancing around it and trying to save everyone's feelings, he's gone right to the heart of it and poked at the most sensitive spot and exposed it. And this this was his very mission. He didn't he wasn't embarrassed about doing that at all. And and that's kind of the point of the previous two chapters, chapter two and three. And and now um, the heat is high and so he's leaving town so that they can think about what they've learned. And he meets this woman at a well, she's she and he asks her if she'll give him to drink. Now for Jesus to, to talk to a woman, first of all, a strange woman is a little bit out of the ordinary, but she is a Samaritan. He wouldn't, she, she even tells him, the Jews have no dealings with us. What that means is, Jews would come to this well and not say a word to me. They would pretend I didn't even exist. This is what I expected from you, and you're asking me not only to give you something to drink, but you're going to drink from the same cup that I'm drinking from? Uh, this is just unheard of. Why would you talk to me? 
Um, he tells her, we learn that she's she's been married and divorced five times. And a lot of people get the wrong idea about the story from this woman being divorced five times. Uh, in Judaism, women did not initiate divorce. And so there's another way to look at this than this woman just goes from man to man. Uh, this is a woman who's been mistreated by, an, uh, by a number of different men. So there's a ton here going on. There's possibly an, a socioeconomic class difference. She is a poor woman who's, who's going to the well because she has no one to help her, and she has to even fetch her own water, and who knows what else she has to do. She is a woman. She is a Samaritan. So there's a racial difference there. I mean, the Jews were very, what we, we would call it racist, what, the way the Jews treated the Samaritans, and vice versa. And there's a religious, a very, very strict religious separation between the two groups. And Jesus just transcends all of these boundaries. He, he walks right up to this woman, and he asks, he immediately engages her. And I imagine in a very loving way, but he, he lets her know he knows everything that's going on in her life. And he lets her know that she's important to him. And she asks him a question. So once again, she says, do you want to drink my water? And he says, if, you'd, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked me, and I would have given you life-giving water. And this begins a discussion. So right once again, we're bringing in the, the motif of water. Um, and th- this time, instead of Jesus transforming the water, he's describing water that transforms people. If you take this water that I give you, then it will become a wellspring springing up in you to eternal life. So what does that mean? What is this water, right? She asked for the water and he says, look, I'm, she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll do certain things for us. And Jesus says, I that speaking that, are, that am speaking to you am he. Jesus tells her very explicitly, I am the Messiah. And she goes throughout the whole village and says, this guy knew without being told exactly everything that I had in my life. This has got to be the Messiah. People come, they, some of them believe on her. Some of them believe Jesus when they hear him. But he stays there two, way, two days and converts a ton of people in this village. The disciples come back in the meantime when Jesus is, um, when the woman runs off and they say, uh, can we, we, we went into the village to buy some food. Here, here you go. And he says, I have food that you don't know anything about. And they say, what do you mean? And, and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. Now, John doesn't have the same story about Jesus going off and being tempted for 40 days uh, of the devil as the other gospels do. But this is John's way of bringing in the same idea of um, from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is Moses reminding the children of Israel, you, you got manna so that you would know that you don't live by bread alone. This is Jesus telling the disciples that same thing. I don't, my life is more than food. Food to me is secondary. What's, what's my food is to do God's will. And this gives us a little indication of what Jesus means by the water. What is this living water? So I, you know, I, I wrote down a few ideas and I welcome your emails about this question. Um, I have my idea that I'll, that I'll discuss. Is, is the living water the doctrine that Jesus is going to teach? Is it the grace that he's going to extend to us? Is it the Holy Ghost that will come? Uh, is it forgiveness? Right? What is this living water that Jesus says will be a well springing up into uh, eternal life? So we get a little bit of, of hint from this offer of food. And my answer is 
to all of these questions, what is the, is the water doctrine? Is it grace? It, the, my answer is yes. The water is himself. Jesus is the living water. So everything that Jesus gives us is the water. If we receive him, if we receive all of him, his teachings, this, this rebirth that he, can, that he can bring upon us by sprinkling clean water and, uh, and then us being born of the Spirit, giving us a new heart, all of that is Jesus' living water. It's not one part of it. It's all of it. So to finish, this, to finish these chapters off, John talks about Jesus returning. Now, where does he return to? He returns to Cana. And uh, so if you look at, if you were to chart on a chalkboard the, the book of John, the gospel of John, you would see the first chapter as an introduction, and then you would see two sets of four stories each. One where Jesus intersects, interacts with these these um, Jewish cultural symbols, and one set where Jesus has four interactions with Jewish festivals. And these are what this is how John has organized his gospel. It's very, it's very intentional, and this this set of four vignettes is bookended by Jesus doing a miracle in Cana. So Jesus is in Cana, and there's a there's a nobleman in Capernaum who hears that Jesus has returned and his son is sick. He comes running to Jesus. He says, Jesus, come back to Capernaum and heal my son. And Jesus says, if you don't see a miracle, and again, this is the light, uh, this is the light shining on people. This is um, people witnessing. These are all these things being activated. And Jesus says, if you don't see a miracle, then you don't believe. And then he says, your son is well. Well, the man takes what Jesus says. He, he receives this feedback from Jesus and changes his heart. And he says, okay, I believe you. And he leaves. And then he hears his son was okay from that time that Jesus spoke. And so, again, one conversation with Jesus. And this man has changed. He's converted. Uh, he, has, he has been willing to see things in a new light. So, Jesus, Jesus intersects or interacts or comes into confrontation with these four Jewish symbols, the, the a wedding, the temple, a rabbi, and this, this sacred well. And in each case, he shows that his wisdom is superior to what exists beforehand, that he is the temple, that he is the, the bridegroom in a figurative sense, if not a literal one, bringing this wine that, of cheer and of abundance. In every case, Jesus is everything the scriptures have promised. And in telling about all of these things, we've activated the, the themes of water, of light. And those who, the, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he, he says, those who refuse the light condemn themselves. They, they've, they're judged already. Now the word, um, we didn't talk yet about John 3.16, but Jesus says in that, in that little exchange, he says, the, those who don't receive my light are condemned already. In other words, they've already judged themselves. They determined beforehand that they don't want the blessings. But I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but but to be its savior. Um, we we've activated the theme of two different seeds. If you remember in in uh, John chapter one, the seed of God or the seed of man, and the this is this is uh, exemplified by the Samaritans and the Jews. We have the, the theme of testimony and believers. 
Um, we have the, the theme of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And we have this idea of the kingdom. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you enter the kingdom when you choose. When, you, when you're reborn, then you, you've entered the kingdom. And finally, Jesus, uh, the, the, the crowning jewel of this, of this entire section is the, this iconic verse, uh, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, or God loved the world so much that he sent his only son into the world so that, so that all mankind could be saved. And Jesus has, has given us enough background by this point that we understand a little bit more what that means, that it is only through Jesus that we can receive this law written upon our hearts, that we can receive this sprinkling of purifying water, that we can receive the, the rebirth in the Spirit. And it's only because of Jesus, indeed it's in very image of Jesus, that we're baptized and that the Holy Ghost comes upon us. All of these things happen because Jesus made them possible and because he actually does them. Uh, there's, there's one final image that I'd like to bring in uh, that, that this, this comes from a, a, a stake priesthood meeting that uh, I had a couple of weeks ago. And I, it was so recently that I thought uh, there's got to be a reason that I was exposed to this idea when I was. So Jesus talks about being born of water and of the Spirit by which we can enter into the kingdom that he's building for us. If, if you have your scriptures, I highly recommend reading along with this because this is fascinating to me at least. I've, this is one of the most profound things I've heard in a long time. And I think something is profound when it is hidden before the fact and obvious after the fact. And so this seems really simple once I learned about it, but I didn't, it had never occurred to me until I, I heard it in a talk. In Moses chapter 6, Verse 59, there's a verse that's very similar to what Jesus is talking about, being born of water and of the Spirit. Moses 6, 59, By reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death, and inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the Spirit, which I have made, and so became of dust a living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the world, the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. Obviously, a verse about baptism and obviously tying this idea of being born again into and, and of born of water and of the Spirit into baptism. So it's very definitely what Jesus was talking about as well. However, there's more going on in this verse. Um, if you have been listening long enough, then you heard the lesson last year on the fall of Adam. If not, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about some ideas that I exposed there, and uh, if, if you're intrigued, you, you can go back and listen to that lesson. But here in, the, in Moses 6.59, God is tying together the two births that we undergo. One of these births is a physical birth, and it ties the fall in with the atonement that we accept the, the fall is a proxy sacrifice. Not a lot of people think about it this way, but if you read uh, Alma chapter 42, you'll, you'll realize that, or at least I believe that um, the fall is a proxy sacrifice where Adam took upon himself the, the transgression of man so that we could all come under the sway of justice. So we, we often, we, nobody would, 
really question the idea that the the atonement is the proxy sacrifice that brings us within the realm of mercy, mercy's ability to have power over us. But not a lot of p- people think about what the fall did for us because it's universal. Everyone who lives on earth has accepted the fall. Nevertheless, there was a time before this life when that wasn't true. We accepted it through an ordinance of the priesthood and then were born into this world and then forgot. But we also had a, uh, a I don't want to say a savior, but there was somebody who, who operated this proxy sacrifice on our behalf as well. And in my opinion, the, the Book of Alma makes it clear that this is when we came under the sway of justice. So, so first we come under the sway of justice, and then we come under the sway of mercy by two great proxy sacrifices. And they're symbolized by these two births that, that happen in this, in this verse. And the thing that I heard in my, in my priesthood meeting was this, that one of these births, ha- and this was, a, this was a young returned sister missionary, the only woman in the room, she was maybe 21 years old, 20 or 21 years old, talking to all these mature men in the stake about um, the value of women. And uh, it's, not, it's a little bit of a tangent from our lesson today, but it was so profound that I just had to bring it up. And basically what she was saying was, that it, there, I, nowhere have I ever seen more perfectly illustrated the, the value of men and women working together to accomplish the purposes of God's plan. Um, inasmuch as you're born into the world by water and blood and the spirit. Now the water and the blood, the water is, you know, when your water breaks, this amniotic fluid, which is mostly water, and the blood is there's usually blood involved in a birth and it's going to be the blood of the mother. It's going to be the mother's blood. And then the spirit, your spirit entering into your body as you're born. And then even so you're, you must be born again into the kingdom of heaven of water, the water of baptism and of the spirit. You receive the Holy ghost and be cleansed by blood. And then God himself says what this is, the blood of mine only begotten. And that can only happen through a worthy priesthood holder, performing this ordinance. So in the first in the first example, we're we receive one great proxy sacrifice through a birth that happens for, that only women can perform. And we receive the second great proxy sacrifice by a birth that only men can perform. And both have blood involved and there is no closer parallel than the parallel of a mother to the Savior, Jesus Christ, because they both give their blood that we can be born into the next phase of our existence. And I just thought that was so beautiful. It has so much to do with what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. It reminded me very much of President Packer's talk in October 93 for Time and All Eternity. And he talks about this man who's given a key to a safe. He's given two keys to a safe. And he has a key to a vault and a key to a safe. And he's told if you if you open this safe when it's appropriate, then there's blessings inside that will always be renewed and you can pass them down. And then uh, eventually a woman comes along. She has the other key to the safe. And, you know, it's not very politically correct these days to think of roles, of gender roles. And to some extent that's appropriate because certainly women have been excluded from very worthy endeavors because it, they've been told it wasn't their role. However, there is a place in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the idea of gender roles, and I believe this is what it is. 
that we that men and women have to fulfill their divinely appointed roles to collaborate with God to provide for the salvation of everyone else and it's through these two births that we make it happen and no one would ever argue that all there is to a mother all there is to motherhood is giving birth any more than anyone would argue that all there is to holding the priesthood is baptizing someone there's there's service and there's teaching and there's love and there's sacrifice and these are the roles and these are how men and women support each other and and this is what we make possible for each other as we're born again and this is what Jesus activated for all of us and this is what we learn as we begin to study the gospel of John and there's there's nothing more powerful we we can be like these people who talk to Jesus we can have one experience with him if we are if our minds are open and our hearts are open to the Holy Ghost, we can have one conversation with Jesus Christ and be converted. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 